Welcome to our community. We hope you enjoy this message from our special guest. Thank you. Um, we thought we'd show you some slides from the Amazon first up. Each slide is only going to be on the screen for about six seconds, so it'll just scroll through quite fast, but it'll give you a visual image of how big and different the Amazon is. None of the rivers actually go straight, as you saw. And it floods every year. There's a little girl paddling to school with a monkey on her head. Uh, they still have primitive tribal groups, such as this in the Amazon, where they hunt with blowguns. Here's a Brazilian missionary that works among them, that has worked among them. There's our three girls looking at one of the uh, animals of the jungle. But we started by starting the YWAM base in a place called Manaus, Amazonas, Brazil. And we refurbished this boat to be our home. We lived on that boat for three years. Here's a picture of us in our first day. Unfortunately, that was our second day. It wasn't our best day. <clears throat> so lots of challenges, lots of difficulty. But after resurrecting the boat, we lived like this among the villages for three years, preaching the good news. Uh, these are the river people here. You can see they are simple people. They're rural Brazilians. They speak Portuguese, and they eat fish and farinha for lunch and dinner every day. <laughs> of course, we have the occasional cashew and other jungle fruits. And that was bath time. You could jump in the river, but we decided to bathe on the back of the boat. That's inside the boat. Uh, life on board. Our son was born about halfway through our three years. And after two years and three months, the first church began with 17 believers being baptized in the Perus River. After three years, we had two churches and 65 baptized believers, adults. And as I said, the rivers flood their banks every year. So this is one of our churches in a community. It's all built up on stilts. The water just flows underneath. Uh, then we also started a church in the town of Labria, Amazonas, Brazil. Uh, we did that through a short-term outreach team who preached the gospel. Here I'm translating for one of the leaders. This is our team. We had a number of Brazilians working with us, and they too worked in different communities. And after uh, some years, we had six churches and about 200 baptized believers. Four years ago, we visited, and this is our church in town. It's now the largest church in the town of Labria, Amazonas. And as Josephine mentioned, our, our book is available, and we hope to get more copies here to Indonesia if you're interested. Our four children all live in Australia. We have our son on the left, Christian, our oldest daughter, Sasha, our new son-in-law, this is the wedding day, Daniel, next to him is his bride, Alex, our third daughter, and then our second daughter, Chloe. And that's our webpage if you want to ever get in touch with us. Uh, our emails are there. Uh, you can buy our book or even download some of our teaching material. Uh, because today we do travel the world and teach. We train the next generation of missionaries in church planting and personal transformation, as Josephine mentioned, through prayer ministry, uh, healing, counseling, and also principles in community development. Um, Believe it or not, we were able to start a church in uh, the Amazon region of Brazil among the river people without ever preaching in it. Um, and it sounds impossible. It's like, how do you start a church without ever preaching in it? Well, actually, Jesus uh, never planted a church. 
but he did start a movement. And he started a movement among Western Aramaic-speaking, Northern Galilean, blue-collar, conservative Jewish males, and he was called Yeshua bar Joseph East Nazareth. He incarnated so completely among the people in Northern Galilee that John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. If you, as a missionary, go and live with another people, you live with them, you live like them, you live among them, you incarnate, then the gospel isn't a foreign white man's God. It's just one of them. And it suddenly makes sense. And so we initiated, we trained, we told Bible stories. You know, every one of you here could do what we did. We literally told the simplest Sunday school stories every Wednesday night in the schoolhouse for two years. And by, by the end of that time, we only had three Christians. And I said to these three Christians, oh, what do you think? Is it time to start a church? And they said, yeah, let's do it. And I said, great, when are you going to? They said, what, us? I said, you bet. We weren't born here. We're not going to die here. This is your community if anybody starts a church, it has to be you. And you know what? They rose to the challenge. It's like, okay. Next day, they went out and invited everybody in the community. And you know what? Everybody in the community came. Mostly out of curiosity, yes. But you know what? They faithfully did that for nine weeks in a row until the main community leader, the school teacher, the best soccer player on the team, ran to the front of the church to make an announcement, ended up sharing his testimony, ended up kneeling down, getting saved. His wife, children came up, they got saved. Six more guys from the soccer team came up, they got saved. That was July 11th, 1993. Just three months later, that picture you saw, I baptized that community leader, teacher, best soccer player, and he became the pastor of the church, he shared with his family. A second church started. Five years later, he was overseeing six River People churches. And they all had their local indigenous pastors. And the churches are going today. In fact, they're growing. You saw that picture of the church in town, the largest church in town, over 300 uh, every Sunday. That happened after we left. Sometimes you sow. Sometimes you uh, plant, sometimes you harvest, but the Bible says God gives growth. Anyway, I'd like to share with you a bit about Moses, John the Baptist, and Jesus, three major characters in Scripture. Um, and I'll use the verse from 1 Peter 2.9 as a text. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's one of the latter books in the Bible. The first book, of course, is Genesis. And in Genesis, we discover that the Bible is a story. Of course, even though the Bible is 66 books and was written over 1,500 years, it actually is just one story. And the main storyline is found 
in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, from your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all peoples on earth shall be blessed through you. These verses are called the Abrahamic Covenant. God is a God of covenant. God was the God of Abraham. God is the God that blessed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that they would bless all peoples on earth. And the reason why the Bible is one story is because all 66 books follow this narrative. It follows this theme that God is a God who reaches out to us and he blesses us, but so that we might be a blessing to others. So this storyline story line actually has two parts. The first part, which I call the top line, is the reward. In verse 2 it says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. You know what? All religions of the world, they, they all want to be great. They, you know, yes, bless us. Spirits, bless us. They're going about making offerings and doing sacrifices so that they would be blessed, so that they could overcome evil, so that they could overcome the evil spirits and not live in fear. That's what actually most religion is all about. But Christianity is the only religion where it's God taking initiative towards us. Actually, God making a sacrifice for us rather than us making sacrifices to God, right? But secondly and most importantly, as God blesses us, he says, so that you go and bless all others. And that's actually what the bottom line is. The bottom line is the responsibility. And you find that in verse 3. We are blessed so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Bible follows this narrative throughout all 66 books. In fact, it repeats the Abrahamic covenant numerous times in numerous ways. And a lot of the history and the stories that you see in the Bible are actual clear examples of the Abrahamic covenant being carried out. God blessing people and nations so that others will be blessed through him. So God is a God who blesses. Not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just Moses. Not just the Jews. But all families on earth. And praise God for that, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but... Uh, my ancestors were like the Vikings, and they like pillaged Europe and killed people. And I mean, they weren't the, you know, they weren't the sharpest tool in the shed. And then they weren't the kindest people around either. But nevertheless, God reached out to them and through others uh, blessed them so that they too might be saved. Now, I mentioned Moses, and we, we really have to talk about Moses. Uh, because pretty much he was like totally amazing. I mean, he really was. 
Uh, Moses, as we know, freed Israel through ten amazing miracles in Egypt, right? The people, the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were enslaved for over 400 years in Egypt. But God rescued them. God liberated them. God freed them. Gave them independence. Amen? Made them a great nation. Just like Indonesia. Right? They were free. Finally free from the colonizers, the captors. It was an amazing moment in their history. God rescued them through Moses. And he rescued them in amazing ways. I mean, the Nile turned to blood. Uh, a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats and insect, other insects, the death of all the Egyptian animals while the Israeli animals were fine. And then on top of that, Mo Pharaoh finally said, okay, like, get out of here, please, just go fast. And they left only to be surrounded by the army of Egypt from behind with the Red Sea in front. But again, God, through incredible, amazing miracle, just opened the sea and the people walked through to safety. And that was only the beginning. Because for 40 years, every day, literally every day, two million people wandering through the desert experienced the miracles of God. Manna came from heaven fed two million people. Water came out of a rock, and the rock followed them around. Like, how weird is that? And every day, where did they go? Well, wherever the cloud went. And by night, wherever the pillar of fire went. I mean, literally, every day, miracles. Incredible stuff. Then, Moses was given the Ten Commandments by God himself. The finger of God wrote on the tablets of stone. Then Moses established the religious system, built the tabernacle, created the priesthood. And in his free time, judging, you know, two million people through the desert, he, you know, squirreled away time in order to write the five books of the Bible. He was an amazing guy. The Bible also says that Moses was a person who knew God and spoke to God. In fact, Deuteronomy 34.10 says, he knew God face to face. He just literally had personal encounters with God, so much so that the glory of God just came over him. And he came down from the mountain, and he was so bright and shiny, people couldn't look at him. And they had to cover him up with a veil. He was too bright to look at. Um, Numbers, verse 12, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 8 says, Moses knew God mouth to mouth. In other words, Moses is described as the only person who God spoke to like we, I'm speaking to you now. All the other prophets and, um, in the Bible, God spoke to them through dreams, visions. But with Moses, it was in plain language. Face to face, mouth to mouth. And in Exodus 25, it says that God gave detailed instructions about how to build the tabernacle, created the priestly system from his brother's line, Aaron. And so it says they built that tabernacle in the wilderness, and when they dedicated it to God, 
the glory of God fell not only upon Moses, but upon all the people. The Jews say that Moses was the greatest prophet, leader, and teacher that Judaism has ever known. And then the comes to the temple in Jerusalem. Fast forward 1,440 years. We see the temple in Jerusalem. The smoke up in the top there is coming from the altar where they had to make sacrifices to receive forgiveness of sins through the family of Moses, right? The priest of Aaron and his line. So for 1,000, more than 1,400 years, the family of Moses were the only ones that ruled over the temple as priests to whom you could bring a sacrifice and that offering was laid on the altar for the forgiveness of sins. Until this guy John the Baptist showed up. And he was a bit of a different one, you know. He was dressed in camel skins and he only ate bugs. But what was also true about John the Baptist was that he was born to be a priest because his father, Zechariah, was a priest in the temple. And if you were the firstborn son to a man who was a priest in the family of Moses and Aaron, well, then at 30 years of age, you became a priest. And you became a priest in the temple because that was the only place to be a priest. And that was the only place you could bring an offering to receive forgiveness of sins. However, as I said, John the Baptist was different. And in fact, he changed all of that. So look in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 11. People came to Jesus and, were t- and John's disciples. And Jesus began to speak to the crowd who had gathered about John the Baptist. He said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, even more than a prophet. Verses 10 and 11. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than Moses. No. That's what everybody was thinking. Remember? Moses was amazing. Moses freed them from slavery in Egypt. Moses did incredible miracles. Moses wrote the law. All the religious leaders called themselves disciples of Moses. And then Jesus said, no man born of women has risen greater than John the Baptist? I mean, seriously? Like, greater than Moses? You've got to be kidding I mean, John the Baptist did no miracles. None. John the Baptist did not deliver the people of Israel from the Romans. They wanted them to. That was their hope in the Messiah. To free them from the Romans just like Moses 
freed the people from the Egyptians, right? John did not write any books of the Bible. In fact, as far as we know, he didn't write anything. John did not, as recorded, see God face to face or hear God mouth to mouth directly. And you know what? He was called a prophet. There's no prophecy according to John. None. Can't find it anywhere. And certainly, John did not lead two million people through the wilderness for 40 years performing amazing daily miracles. John had a small band of followers, and his ministry lasted about two years. So how in the world is John the Baptist the greatest man born of woman? Well, it's interesting because in that passage of Matthew, Jesus um, actually paraphrases the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah about the person who is going to precede him and prepare the way, right? He says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Well, this is only a paraphrase. And for the Jewish people who knew their history, just like Indonesians know Indonesian history, right? We all study our national history. Well, the Jews knew their history, so they didn't, you didn't need to quote exactly. They knew what Jesus was talking about. But for us, you know, 2,000 years later, non-Jews, we don't quite get it. So why don't we go back now to Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, and read it there where it's written. It begins by this, saying, A voice of one calling. Pause. There's punctuation there. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You know, linguistically, if you say something and then you pause, what you say after the pause has the emphasis. So what he said in Matthew went like this. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The emphasis is on prepare. And when I've asked Christians all over the world as we travel and teach, I said, what did John the Baptist do? And everybody said, oh, he prepared the way of the Lord. And then I asked, how? I said, oh, um, he preached the gospel? Yes. He um, preached repentance for sins? Yes. He baptized people? Yes. In fact, four of John's disciples became the disciples of Jesus. And so he kind of prepared his team. Yeah, okay, prepared his team. But nobody seems to get the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is right here in Isaiah 40, verse 3. Because the emphasis is not on prepare. The emphasis is on, listen for it, a voice of one calling. Pause. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The emphasis is on in the wilderness, not the word prepare. Well, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> what it has to do is that John the Baptist taught repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins, not in the temple, but in the wilderness. 
Remember, the only place to be forgiven was where? In the temple. In Jerusalem. By the family of Moses, who were the only ones allowed to be a priest. Who were the only ones who were allowed to make the sacrifice for your forgiveness and mine. You know what? If that system continued, you know what we'd be doing? We'd be just like the Muslims doing the Hajj. Going back to the holy city. We would be making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And we'd go into the court of the Gentiles as Gentiles. And we'd have to buy a sacrifice, an offering. A few doves, maybe a goat, maybe a sheep. Right? Remember that story? It actually happened to be the first public words that Jesus spoke in ministry. My House should not be a den of robbers. My house should be a house of prayer for who? All nations. Here we are back at Genesis 12. The biblical theme, the narrative that God is a God for all peoples, not only the Jews. And John the Baptist somehow, somewhere, heard the word of the Lord. The word of God came to him. For that reason alone, he is a prophet. And for that reason alone, he is the greatest man ever born of woman. Why? Because he restored the biblical narrative of all peoples being able to be blessed by God and receive salvation from God. Luke 16, 16 says that the law... And the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. So John is the greatest because he did not do his priestly duties in the temple. He's the greatest because he did not function like a priest according to the law of, the Mos of Moses. We don't really appreciate what a huge shift this was, but remember, I said this was a system for 1,440 years. <laughs> that was the old covenant, and he ushered in the new covenant. Well, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they knew what a huge change this was. They knew it straight away. Because their livelihood was at risk. Their respect, their honor, their social status as the only ones from the family of Moses who are authorized officially to forgive you and you and you and you and me of our sins. Right? Their very jobs were at risk. The religious leaders were definitely the first ones to feel the foundations of the old covenant like shaking. Something's going to break here. However, unfortunately, they did not see or comprehend what the new covenant looked like. And so instead of listening to Jesus and following the pattern of John the Baptist and Jesus, they resisted it. John the Baptist in Genesis 12, well, Genesis 12, John the Baptist restored the biblical narrative of Genesis 12 
so that we are blessed, top line, to be a blessing, bottom line, to all peoples. John made a way for you and I to be forgiven and saved here today as Indonesians, as Chinese, as Brazilians, as Americans, as Australians, as whatever. In fact, he opened up the way for you and I to be priests. John, then Jesus, put an end to the temple, its sacrifices, and to the priestly order. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 10 tells us that. The body and blood of Jesus Christ sacrificed on the cross once and for all. So he was the perfect sacrifice. When he died on the cross outside the temple of Jerusalem, there was the sun got dark, there was an earthquake, and what happened in the temple when the earthquake happened? Do you remember? What was torn? The curtain. The curtain represented the separation between God and the people. Remember, only the high priest could enter, go through that curtain only one time every year into the presence of God. And then he had to come out again. And they tied a rope around his ankle in case he died and they had to pull him out. But now the perfect sacrifice was given on the cross. And the moment the perfect sacrifice was made, the curtain was torn and God was out of the box. He was out of the temple. And you know what? He's now in us, in you and me. God in us, God with us, Emmanuel. Amen? God is a God for all people. This is the main storyline of the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. As you come to him, the living stone, you also are like living stones. You are being built into a spiritual house, a temple. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Basically, Peter said, we are the temple. And the Bible confirms that your body is the temple of the Spirit of God. Your body is now the temple. We no longer need the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We no longer need sacrifices in Jerusalem. And we also are a holy priesthood. We no longer need priests to mediate on our behalf to make sure that we find forgiveness through a sacrifice. We are the temple. We are the holy priesthood. Not just the pastor, not missionaries like us, all of us. We all are the priests of the living God. Because we have the spirit of the living God dwelling in us, his temple. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, I was given the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So that Gentiles, right? 
all peoples might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So you know what? We too, like Paul, you too, like Paul, are given the priestly duty of proclaiming the good news of forgiveness to all people. And you know what? doesn't matter if you're ordained or have done missions training or anything because all of us have been given all authority on heaven and earth delegated to us by Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, to be the priests of God to offer forgiveness of sins to all people. Amen. So as priests, that's what we do. We are meant to go out in the wilderness, in the highways, in the byways, to people all around us and preach the good news of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Like John and Jesus, we must go to the lost. We must go to the people. We must go out in the wilderness and preach the gospel of repentance. Because the fact is, 2,000 years ago, the lost people were not really coming into the temple So John and then Jesus went out to the people in the wilderness. Today, too, you know, people are not just flocking into this temple or other assemblies, right? We, too, must go to them. Go to the lost. Go into the wilderness, if need be, and bring people into the temple. Amen? Amen. So let's stand. You know, the river people in the Amazon, they had this idea that they had to buy pictures of Catholic saints and put them on their wall and adorn them and offer sacrifices to the saints. And they lived in fear. If they didn't do that, something bad would happen to them. You know, that's what religion is. You see religion all over the world like that. People trying to find a way to get to God recognizing that they're sinners. They need to do something to pay for their sin. They need to offer a sacrifice so that they become acceptable to God. But you know, the good news is God has made us acceptable. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. And therefore, now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God living in us and the presence of God. And where you go, the glory of God goes. Where you go as a temple, the glory of God falls. You do have the authority to proclaim forgiveness of sins. We don't forgive sins. God forgives sins. But we are the priests. We are the royal priesthood. So let's receive his authority. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, the perfect sacrifice, so that no one ever again has to go to a temple and make an offering in hopes of finding forgiveness of sin. But you have made it sure that we are forgiven because of your perfect sacrifice. So use us, Lord, to go out to the highways, the byways, in the wilderness, and preach the gospel of repentance and the baptism of forgiveness of sins 
so that people can be, be the temple of the living God. The living God, creator of heaven and earth, can just now live within, abide within, and restore us back into relationship with our creator. Thank you, God, for a marvelous message, the beautiful good news of Jesus Christ. Equip us all. Help us to recognize it's not us. It's not even our authority or our ability. But it's the authority of God himself sending us out with the good news of the gospel to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all people. And his people said, Amen. Amen.